So today we are in Hebrews chapter 11, and before we jump right into it, especially for Steve and Sam, I want to give a quick brief review. Uh, In fact, you guys should be able to do it. We've done it so many times. I do it at the beginning of every time. The, The letter to Hebrews was written about 60 to 70 AD to a group of believers and those that were what I call either posers or just intellectual ascenders in their head to the, the facts about Jesus over in and around Rome. And they, they were gathered, they were going through persecution both from the Romans and the Jewish, their Jewish countrymen. And the, the writer wrote this letter to warn the people who weren't all in with Jesus to be all in with Jesus. Because there were three groups. There were the people that were all in. They were transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But they were struggling. There was a second group that just had mentally assented to the facts about Jesus. But they never had a heart change. They never had a heart change. They merely knew about Him. And they believed the facts like you would believe the facts like about George Washington. But it had no impact on their life. But they were hanging around that first group because... (laughs) Somehow they believe that if you hung around people that really were all in and you agreed that it was good, that maybe it would be good for you. But that's not what gets you into the family of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, many are going to come to me and he's going to say what? Depart, for I never knew you. And, but Lord, we did these things. We, we healed people. We cast out demons. We preached. And he says, depart, I never knew you. Because it's that intimacy that it's about. And then there's a third group still trying to figure it out. So the writer wrote a series of five warnings interspersed with theology that he was talking to them, trying to help them understand and teach them. And the first warning was in chapter 2 where he says, don't drift away from the message about Jesus being supreme. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Don't drift away from that. You don't just hear it the first time and be all in with Him. Nobody does that. He said, so, so keep coming back to the message. Let the message permeate your heart. Let it change your heart. Let your heart be all in with Him. Then the, the next warning is in chapter 3 where He says, don't harden your heart like the children of Israel. And he quotes from Psalm 95, which is a commentary on Exodus uh, where the children of Israel going out of Egypt forgot the power of the Almighty God, and they grumbled and complained, and they said, does God really care? Is He really with us? It wasn't just the complaining, it's the fact that they doubted that God was who He said He is, and He would be a man who kept His promises, or a God who kept His promises. And so He says, don't harden your heart like they did. And then He goes into chapter 4, and He makes a statement about Jesus being the great high priest. A priest who understands us, but a priest who is the highest priest. And this threw them into confusion because Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. In the Jewish system, the high priest was the greatest spiritual leader of the country. And he had to come from the tribe of Levi through the line of Aaron. And so he starts to tell them, he says, let me tell you about Melchizedek, but then he stops himself and gives them another warning. He gives them a third warning. Because he realizes that there's people in the group who can't even understand who Melchizedek is and why he's important. 
And so he gives them this warning, don't waver. Don't keep wavering between the sacrificial corrupted system of the Jewish temple because it had gotten corrupted. It wasn't originally meant that way, but it had gotten corrupted. And so it now became workspace to work your way to God. And so what they were doing is, yes, we believe in Jesus, but oh, we still got to keep going to the temple and doing the sacrifice. He says, don't keep wavering and conflating Back and forth, don't waver. Be all in with Jesus. Amen. He says, let your rest be in Jesus. And that's the warning. And then in chapter 7, he goes into Melchizedek and explains that Melchizedek and Jesus are king priests, the only two king priests in the Bible. Jesus fulfilled the Messianic Psalm in Psalm 110 where he says, the Messiah will be in the order of Melchizedek. And he explains how Melchizedek and Jesus are kings and priests. They both are kings of righteousness. They both are kings of peace. They both are greater than Abraham. That, that makes Jesus greater than Aaron. And he precedes Aaron in his priesthood because he's in the order of Melchizedek. Then he goes into chapters 8 and 9 where he says the old covenant system, the old thing was just a picture of what was to come. It was a limited picture because it was like a forbearance on a loan. For you guys in the financial industry, if you forbear a loan, does that forgive the loan? No. You still have to pay it, right? I thought that, man, I thought that means I don't have to pay it. And I remember when COVID came out, the bank sent me a thing, forbear your loan. So I called them, I said, my, your mortgage payment. So I called them and I said, so that means I don't have to pay for the next six months? They said, that's right. They said, but come October, this was back in March, come October, you got to make up all those six months at one time. I'm like, that's ludicrous. I'm not going to have that kind of money in one month. But the Old Testament was a picture of forbearance of sin until Jesus came. It was putting it off where He wiped it all away, the guilt of sin, when He died on the cross. So the Old Covenant was just picturing what was going to happen when Jesus came. And that's what he says in chapters 8 and 9. And then in chapters 10, he says, because we have a high priest who's 24-7 access to God where he's interceding on by our behalf, that means we have access to God 24-7. No matter what you do, how bad you fail, how immoral you are, if you're his kid, you always have access to God the Father through Jesus. And he said, we have an advocate 24-7. And he says, because of these things, draw near to the Father, which is that's intimacy and faith. That's that faith part of the relationship. He says, hold fast your confession of hope, which is the, the hope of, of looking forward to the time where we're going to be with Jesus. And then he says, consider how to stir one another up with good works. That's love. Faith, hope, and love right there in chapter 10 of Hebrews. But then he gives a fourth warning. He says, don't be an apostate. Don't keep on sinning deliberately when you have the knowledge of the truth. That's what an apostate is. It's somebody who knows the truth but rejects it, either overtly or they just pose. False They're hypocrites. Yeah. They're, they, they're, it's, it, it's somebody who's acting like a believer. They walk like a duck. They talk like a duck, but they're not ducks because they've never had a heart change. And so he goes from chapter 10 after giving that warning about apostasy. And at the end of the chapter, he said, 
The soul that shrinks back, God isn't pleased with. And he's quoting, I think from, if I remember right, Habakkuk. And he says, the soul that shrinks back does not please God. Shrinking back is, is, is somebody who's saying, nah, I can't do this. Well, you mean I can't? I can't beat this addiction. I can't beat this bad relationship. I can't do this. I, you know, we, we do that all the time because we look in our power and our strength. And he, he's saying the soul that shrinks back God isn't pleased with. So then he starts showing them in chapter 11 what it means to live by faith. Because from the very beginning, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it was about faith in the one true living God. Faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He he spells it out in verse 1. And then he starts in Genesis. And what he's doing is unbelievable. I I never had really thought about it in all my years of, of walking with the Lord, of how this writer laid out in chapter 11 the whole Bible with examples for these people to make a decision to go from being partially bought in to all in with Jesus. And he starts with Abel. And he says, Abel brought the right sacrifice as prescribed by God. Cain brought what he thought, not what God wanted. And we do that all the time. And so he starts with Abel, which is in Genesis. Then he moves from Abel to Enoch, the seventh son of Adam through Seth. And he says, Enoch walked with God. And we saw, as we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, what that means. It's intimacy with God. Not knowledge about God, but knowledge of God. Walking with Him. And that's what it says. And then he goes from Enoch to Noah, who was uh, Enoch's great-grandson. And he, 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 I think... It was Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Yeah, so it was his great-grandson. So Noah, it says, walked with God too. But then Noah put God on display in front of a pagan nation when he built this huge boat, the flood. And so he goes from Noah then to Abraham, the father, really, of the faith, a lot of people call him. And it shows the process of faith, how Noah was called, tested, God's power was revealed. And then we saw this statement in 16 of chapter 11 where it says, God was not ashamed to be called as God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's how he's referred to and has been referred to ever since. Because God's not ashamed to be called as God. Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham wasn't saved by his righteous deeds. He wasn't saved because he raised the knife to kill his son in obedience to God. He was saved because he believed, it says, that God could even raise him from the dead if he needed to. He was saved by his faith. That's that's what God wants the people to understand. It's faith alone. Not faith plus a church. Not faith plus your works. It's faith. It's God's grace alone through faith alone. Christ alone. And that's what he wants us to know. And so he's unfolding the story. And so we saw last week, he continued the story of Abraham by revealing his son, the story of Isaac and how Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all looked forward for the promise, even though they never received it, they were looking forward. In fact, Joseph, before he died, said, take my bones to the promised land that was promised to Abraham. Take my bones to them. 
And that was the last thing that we see about Joseph. And now, Joseph ended Genesis, right? And then what happened after that? We saw the life of Moses. And Moses revealed the sovereignty of God as well as the supremacy of our faith to everything else. And we saw Moses make these four choices last week. Remember what they were? The first one was what? He, instead of choosing the honor of man, he chose what? To be with God and His people. Because he could have had all the honor of being in Pharaoh's family, but instead he went with his people. Second, he chose the purity of God instead of the pleasures of man. And that's right out of the text from last week in, in chapter 11. That's right out of Exodus. Where it's just, it tells the story. They would have known this. So he's not going into great detail. He's just making a few statements about it. But he also chose the perspective of God over the possessions of man. All the gold of Egypt, all the silver of Egypt was at his disposal as an adopted grandchild of Pharaoh. And he said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to look what God, I, I want what God wants, not what man wants. And then the last thing we saw last week was he was obedient to God's command. When God told him to put the blood over the door and, and to sacrifice a lamb, we saw that a lamb was an idol for the Egyptian people. So, so he's taken us, the writer's now taken us through where? Through Exodus. And it, actually through Deuteronomy. Because that's the life of Moses all the way through Deuteronomy. And now this week, he continues the journey of faith through the Old Testament. And he takes us into the next book. You know what that is? It's Joshua. And so he mentions Joshua and Rahab, both out of that book. And then he goes into Judges. He mentions Gideon, Barak, um, Jephthah, and um, who's the other one he mentions? Samson. So he mentions those. He doesn't give anything about them except their names. Why? Because every Jew would have known their stories. A lot of us don't know all the details of these stories. They grew up hearing them. They grew up memorizing them. And so he doesn't even go into detail. He's just spitting out names. And then he goes not even spitting out names. He's just telling what they did. But every person listening would have known. And what he's doing is he's laying the case for faith. This is the greatest chapter in the Bible on faith, I think. This chapter. It's known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. But we're looking specifically at verses 30 to 40. And here's, here's the outline today. It's really simple. It's really simple. The text just lists all these people, but it really reveals there's two sections. The first section really deals with courage. The second section deals with conviction. So God calls you and I to a true faith that shows courage, first of all. Amen. <clears throat> he, show, he, he calls us to a faith that shows courage. The second thing is He calls us to a faith that shows conviction. Two different things. But they both are illustrated here in the text. And so as we look at this text in Hebrews 11.30-40, I'm going to read it. I want to ask you these questions. When God commands us to do something or He presents us with an opportunity to put Him on display, do we evaluate from a worldly perspective what that's going to mean from us? Or do we look for a way out? What do we do? Not what do we want to do, what's the ideal, 
What do we actually do day to day? Do we show a courageous faith to those around us? Do we show an unyielding faith in the one true living God? When people see us this morning, I had a guy, in fact, there's a 90-year-old guy I told you he's going to get baptized in two weeks. He came up to me and said, Doug, you know what? I was at this place the other day and, and I was talking to this lady for a while and this lady said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And he goes, it felt so good to be called that by somebody else that I didn't know. We, we should be putting God on display with our acts of faith in the one true living God. And that's what he's trying to tell them. So let's read this and come back and look at these. Starting in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even change and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. May God bless His Word. Amen. A faith that shows courage. Man, he starts off in verse 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. He doesn't even mention his name, but he's in the book of Joshua. I want you to go there real quick. Joshua chapter 1 first. Because a lot of times I find that guys especially go, man, I wish I could have that kind of faith. I wish I could really step out. They struggle with fear. Maybe you struggle with fear. Well, guess what? You're not alone. Look in Joshua chapter 1 and listen to what God says to His servant Joshua. Verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right 
hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How would you like to hear the audible voice of God saying that to you? That's what Joshua heard. You got to remember what was going on. Moses led the million plus people out of Egypt. And guess who was right by his side the whole time watching? Joshua was with him. Through it all, Joshua was going with him. And then Moses goes, oh, by the way, Joshua, I'm not going over there in the promised land. You're going to lead him through that. He's like, what? Yeah, God told me I can't go. So you're going to do it. But Moses, I'm not you. I can't, I can't do this. You can almost hear the conversation taking place. Moses, you've got to be the one. I mean, I watched how the people rebelled against you. How, what am I going to do? And God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So go ahead, Joshua. Take them over there. Send the spies out. He sent the spies out. The spies come back. Man, there's some big people over there. There's people, they got big numbers. They got this big wall. This huge wall in Jericho. It was the first place. Jericho was on the southern border of Canaan. It was, a, it was like our, our southern border. They, they went over, the spies saw it, and they go, we can't conquer that. What are we going to do? They didn't have a lot of weapons. Go over to Joshua 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out, verse 1, because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. You want to talk about a lockdown? They were under a lockdown. They were locked down. They had heard about what Israel did with Egypt. They had heard about a couple of kings that they had routed. And so they were locked down. Israel was on the move and they locked down. Listen to what God says to Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, See... I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. This you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet... All the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. So Joshua calls the heads of the tribes up there, the elders. He said, okay guys, here's the battle plan. We're going to go across the Jordan and then we're going to walk around Jericho. Six days. We're just going to walk. Excuse me, boss. Uh, won't they see us walking around? Won't that look kind of stupid that we're just kind of like sitting ducks walking around the city? 
That's what God said to do. Okay, okay, you're in charge. Doesn't seem right, does it? It seems unorthodox, unconventional. See, here's the thing. God calls us to show a true faith and, and show others courage by a lot of times unconventional obedience. He calls us to do unconventional things and He wants us to show that obedience because people are going, that's stupid. Why would you do that? That makes no sense. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in my life. That makes no sense. Right, Bennett Brown? <laughs> right, Bennett Brown? Bennett was with me in Russia back 25 years ago. It makes no sense. But courage is demonstrated when God's people do unconventional things with courage and put obedience on display for people. And Joshua did it. Look what it says in verse 20 to 22. So the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city and they devoted all in the city to destruction, men, women, young, old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, the edge of the sword. It happened. It's like God said it would. That's crazy, isn't it? But that's, that's faith. Well, then he mentions Rahab. Now, Rahab is back in Joshua 2. And remember, he's unfolding the story of faith. And he mentions Rahab. Why? Because Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a nobody. Rahab, Rahab lived in the city wall, which meant she was a poor prostitute. So she, not only was she a pagan, she was an immoral pagan. And she lived in the city wall, and yet God saved her. Look, go back to chapter 2 and look at what it says. Verse 9. Rahab said this to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Do you know what Rahab expressed right there? A need. She didn't bring anything to God except a need. And said, I, want you, I recognize who you are and I want to be saved by you. And God saved her by faith. She turned against her own people. I don't say this. I said this this morning. I'm a patriot through and through. I was a Marine. I was an FBI agent. And I'm a patriot. I love the American flag but it's always underneath Jesus in my book. Amen. And we have to be careful. We have to be really careful. 
because sometimes we elevate the flag of our country over the flag of Jesus. You don't have to do that. You can be a patriot and love Jesus. She, she turned against her countrymen to honor the one true living God. And, he, and she's listed in this faith journey for all to hear about. Well, then he goes into Judges and, and talks about Gideon. That's the next book. If you go over to Judges chapter 7, you see the story of Gideon. We're not going to go. It's really in 6, 7, 8, 9. Gideon's a fascinating character study. I encourage you to go back and read about him. Not only what he did with the Midianites, but what happened afterwards. Because he actually failed afterwards. He, he, he tried to set up a political oligarchy with his 70 sons. It was a disaster. He tried to be a politician. That doesn't work too well for God's people all the time. And so, but he was a man of faith. And in chapter 7, he took 32,000 men and was going to fight 135,000 men. How many of you guys were in the military? Okay, so let's say I just grabbed you, Derek, and I said, okay, Derek, we've been tasked, I've been tasked, by the president to put together a special unit, 300 men to go to Afghanistan. 300 men, there's 135,000 Taliban soldiers along the border over there that we gotta go wipe out. And there's only 300 of us. No air support, no tanks, just us. That's scary. That is flat out scary. And they didn't fight back then like we fight now. I mean, it was up close and personal. 135,000 Midianites. And God told Gideon, 32,000 is too many. I want you to get smaller. Smaller. Down to 300. 300 against 135,000. There's no bookie in the world that would take any or would even give odds on that kind of thing. And so Gideon gets these 300 men together and he says, okay, it's going to be a tough mission. But God's got our back. Well, what weapons are we going to use, Gideon? I mean, what are we going to do? Okay, I want you to go get pitchers and lamps and trumpets. See, we laugh. I mean, think about what he had to do. He had to tell 300 guys this was how they were going to do it. You could only do that with faith. You could only take that step into battle doing what God said with faith. But see, Gideon had heard about Joshua. Gideon had heard about Moses. Gideon had heard about Abel and Enoch. Just like we hear. And so, it says that he routed all but 15,000 of those men. 120,000 men. They wiped out the 300 men. But it wasn't Gideon. Because what happened? He did what God said. He smashed the pitcher's held up the torches, blew the trumpets, and God caused confusion in the Midianites and they were slaying each other. Friendly fire everywhere, but it wasn't with guns. It was, they were slashing each other everywhere. Now, over in Deuteronomy 28.20, 20, it says this. Now, this is back when God is blessing Israel, getting them blessed for obedience and curses for uh, disobedience. And listen to what it says. I think this is instructive that God says this to Israelites. And then I think it applies to nations too, principally. Curses for disobedience. 
28.20, he says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. If God wants to cause confusion, He can do it. He can create havoc anywhere. Sure. And so he, he tells the story of Gideon. Then he goes on to Barak. You may not know the story of Barak. Barak's in Judges chapter 4. Barak was a guy that was elevated to a position of delivering Israel from the Canaanites. There was a Canaanite leader named Sisera who, who headed up basically, um, he had 900 iron chariots. Now, what he did, he had 10,000 poorly trained and poorly armed men. What he did was the equivalent of taking a, 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 the armed militia. If, let's say I could get 10,000 men with rifles, you know, AR-15s, and putting them up against a tank division. That's what it's like. 900 tanks. I want you to imagine that for a second. Because the chariots were feared back in that day. Because they were so fast and so mobile. And God told Barak through the prophetess Deborah who spoke for God that she was a prophetess and she told him, you're going to get a victory. You need to go do it. And he said, I'll go, but I'm not going unless you go. I want God's speaking to me while we're doing this. And she said, that's fine, but a woman is going to basically kill Sisera, not you. If you'd have just gone, you'd have been the one to do it, but because you won't go without me, a woman's going to kill Sisera, and that's what happened. You see, they routed them, and Sisera's on the run, and he's running away from the, the battle, and he sees a tent, and it's a lady named Jael who had been kind to his boss and his king, and so Jael says, hey, come on in here and I'll hide you. And Jael brought him in there and he said, I'm really thirsty. Can I have some water or some, something? And she gave him some milk. She said, have some milk. Laid him down, covered him up, said, I'll hide you. Don't worry. He falls asleep and she drives a tent peg through his temple. And then it says... He died. Of course he died. <laughs> Nobody survives that, man. A tent peg went through one side of his head to the other. <laughs> but that was Barak. Then he gets into Samson. Samson's over in Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. You know the story of Samson, but let me just remind you of a couple of things. Samson, his parents were told, was called. He would be a special child. He would be a child of faith. And he believed. He believed so much that he went out and he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Would you go up against a thousand guys with a bone? A bat? You could give me a machine gun, I wouldn't go up. A thousand guys, that's a lot of guys. He took two city gates, held them, and went up a mountain with them. Yeah, right. That's unbelievable. The guy put faith on display. Was he flawed? Of course he was. Of course he was. See, it's not about your flaws. It's about your faith. Right. 
Guys, you've got to understand that. It's not about our perfection. It's about the direction and ultimately our loyalty. And he's trying to lay out all these people. They were, Gideon was flawed. Samson, flawed. Barak, flawed. The next one, Jephthah. Jephthah was a son of a prostitute ostracized by the people of the city because his mom was a prostitute. And so he goes and he's getting some guys who are kind of rowdy, guys that come up on the wrong side of the tracks, and he kind of builds them a little band of guys out there. But guess what? Then the Ammonites come against the people and they go to him and they say, listen, you're a tough guy, man. We need your help now. And he goes, whoa, wait a minute. You thought I was a bad guy. You didn't even want me in your city. I'll come help you, but if I come help you, I'm going to lead you when it's over. And that's what happened. And by faith, he defeated the Ammonites. And then he goes into Samuel. So again, the writer's progressing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then into Samuel, he mentions David. What's David best known for? Well, I mean, what are, if you mention David to most people, they don't, well, well, no. I would not even say Bathsheba, Goliath. When you were a kid, they didn't tell you about Bathsheba, but they told you about Goliath. Yeah? We didn't hear about Bathsheba till later, but we all heard about Goliath, right? And the stones. Now, David was the youngest son, and when he went up against Goliath, most commentators believe he was probably 12, 13, 14 years old. Now, I want you to turn to Judges, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34. 1 Samuel 17, verse 34, and listen to what, what it says in God's Word about David. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and be with you. Better you than me. That's what Saul said. No kidding. What king sends a 13, 14-year-old out into a battlefield? And so he's feeling bad and he hands his shields to him. you got to do it. He's like, I can't wear this. I'm just going to take my sling. That's what served me well with the lions. But I want you not to miss this. David didn't just go from never doing any acts of faith to stepping out against the lion. God grew his faith as he what? Did what he was supposed to do. His dad said, David, go care for the sheep. And he did. And he didn't let a lion take him. And he didn't let a bear take him. You guys ever pull the chin of a bear or a lion? That takes faith. I'll give you $100 just to see that. <laughs> Anybody in this room, I promise you, we'll, we'll go to the zoo, and yeah. if you go up and you grab the, the chin of that thing, I'll give you 100 bucks, Just to see somebody do it. I've always read that and never seen anybody do that. And so, 
Go over to verse 44 and listen to what Goliath says. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. I want you to figure a big nine-foot Mike Tyson looking guy with shield, spear, and a big sword saying that to you. And you're on the receiving end and you're looking up. He says, this is what David said in response. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know not that David is great, but that there is a God in Israel. Amen. Our acts of faith and courage are not about us. It's to show people that we serve the one true living God. And so David killed him and chopped off his head. And Israel never, ever forgot it. It's one of the most celebrated acts in Israel history. Amen. And then he mentions Samuel. First 25 chapters of 1 Samuel is about Samuel's life. And you know what? Samuel was courageous in a lot of ways, but a couple of ways specifically. He was always confronting people. He confronted the king, Saul. When Saul did not do what God had commanded him to do, he confronted him. He confronted his mentor, Eli. That's hard to do. I'm just telling you, that's hard to do to confront somebody who mentors you. Samuel, David, Jephthah, Samson, Barak, Gideon, Rahab, Joshua. Joshua all the way up through Chronicles. He he lays it out. But then he goes into the prophets and what he shows us there is that God calls us not only to a faith that shows courage, but one that shows conviction. You see, courage courage gets you to a point, but conviction takes you over the finish line. Courage gets you into the battle. Conviction takes you through the battle. And that's what he's saying. He goes into the prophets. Go back to Hebrews with me. And he says, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who is he talking about there? David. Who? Daniel. Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. King Darius had given a decree because a bunch of people in the kingdom did not like Christians. A lot like people in this country don't like Christians. They throw accusations and they put up bad laws. They put up a bad law and Daniel got caught in the middle of it and he was told, if you pray, you're going to go in the lion's den. And what did he do? He opened up the windows like he always did so everybody could see. He wasn't afraid. Amen. He had conviction. Right. He wanted people to see he trusted in the one true living God. Then he says, the next phrase, he says, who quenched the power of fire. Who's he talking about there? 
Shadrach, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah are better known by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3. And I love what these three said to Nebuchadnezzar who erected this big statue and said, if you don't bow down when you hear the music, you're going to be thrown in the fire. They said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to give you an answer, but know this, we will never bow down. Our God will deliver us. And if He doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're never going to bow down for it. Amen. And that's what they did. And they were thrown in the fire, but there were four in the fire. There wasn't just three. There was a pre-incarnate Christ in there because it says one who looked like the Son of God. And here's the crazy thing about that passage. Nebuchadnezzar had to call him out of the fire. You know why? If you've been in here before, you know why. Because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than outside of the fire away from him. Amen. It's better to be in the fire with Jesus. They knew that. And then he says, Escape the edge of the sword. We're made strong out of weakness. Who escaped the edge of the sword? Well, Elijah and Elisha escaped the edge of the sword. Elijah from Jezebel, Elisha from Jehoram. You got to go back to 1 Kings 17, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 19 to read about Elijah and 1 King or 2 Kings 6 to read about Elisha. But they escaped. These people would have known that. They know who he's talking about. And then he says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. The Old Testament, uh, this again, Elijah again. He's talking about Elijah in 1 Corinthians or 1 Kings 17. The um, widow of Zarephath. And then over in 2 Kings 4, Elisha raised the Shunammite widow's son or the Shunammite woman's son. So he's just going through all these stories these people would have known. And then he says, others suffered. Oh, he said, let me go back. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise to a better life. Some were, they were mocked, flogged, chains in prison. They were stoned. Do you know that Z- Jeremiah and Zechariah were stoned? Isaiah was sown in half. These are all great people of God, men of faith. And what he's showing here is the endurance of faith. He's showing they did no right no matter what happened. They didn't care what happened. They wanted to do what God called them to do because they were men of faith. They demonstrated an unyielding loyalty to the one true living God. Do you have a yielding or an unyielding loyalty? Are you a person of conviction in the one true living God? Amen. He goes through and he says this, and he says the world was not worthy. He throws in that little commentary of these men. And he says, even though all these were commended by faith, they didn't even see the fulfillment of the promise in Christ. They didn't see it. We have the benefit of the Word of God here to know what happened. And yet we all struggle so bad on a day-to-day basis to be people of courage and conviction because we allow the enemy to dull our senses spiritually. And he says to these people, because of all this, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If you've ever been in a race, 
You know you don't wear a lot of bulky clothes. And sin entangles us. Immorality entangles us. Selfishness entangles us. Bad relationships entangles us. Disobedience entangles us. All these things, he's saying, give them all up. So as we close our time, I want you to think about these two questions. One, what am I fearing? Am I a man of courage? What am I really fearing? Do do I fear man? What man can do to me? I mean, I dare say if somebody busted in here and said, okay, it's against the law to be a Christian. You're all going to jail. How many of us would go, okay, I'm in. I'm going. Put me away. I don't care. Or would we be up? You know, I'm just here visiting. This is my first day. I don't even know what they're talking about. Am I fearing failure? You know, fear of failure keeps us from being obedient to God a lot of times. Or do we fear God? Are we men of courage who fear the one true living God with a reverent fear and we demonstrate to the world no matter what God calls us to do. Oh, you're doing what? You're leaving the FBI, Doug? I mean, you you got a million dollar education in investigative work and, and you got a good secure job. You got three kids. You're leaving that to go into ministry? Makes no sense. My own dad questioned me. And he's the one who taught me about Jesus. Second question is where am I compromising? Am I compromising the mission? Our mission is to put God on display to the world around us. If you're in the military, you understand the mission drives everything. Well, for us as believers, a lot of times it doesn't, but it should. Are we compromising God's mission because of our pleasure, because of our personal desires? Because I, no, I had no freedom to do that in the Marine Corps. I'd have been booted in about two seconds. Am I compromising in my marriage? Am I compromising in my morals? Father, these are hard questions. Sobering questions. But Lord, very needed questions for us to reflect. And thank you for the reminder in your word of all these great men and women of faith. I pray for each man here that as we walk out the door today, that Lord, we would not walk out the same way we walked in. That Lord, the Spirit would convict us in our own hearts of our lack of courage, our lack of conviction, and would strengthen us to walk, Lord, in unconventional obedience to You. When You give us tasks, Lord, we would be obedient like Gideon. We would be obedient like Joshua. Even though we don't understand how you're going to use what you've asked us to do, Lord, when we know you want us to do something or you've commanded us to, let us be obedient with courage. And then, Lord, let us have the conviction to hold through to the end. Let us be persevering saints. I pray for each man here, Lord, do not let the enemy sidetrack us, but let us walk faithfully until we 
stand before you and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.